This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. We occupy a world in which the main systems of governance are non-consensual and immune from real responsibility. Now, some people are peacefully plotting to change that. Tom Bell can be found surfing the waves of the West Coast and freeing surfs on a wave of consensual governance. He's been around the globe advising every free city, floating city, and soon-to-be real city of tomorrow as an expert in legal institutions and governance. A past guest on the show, he's now releasing a new book, Your Next Government? Question mark. Very important question mark. From the nation state to stateless nations. And it's got a little bit of everything from theory to practice to some stories best imbibed with a brew. Tom, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Isaac. Hi, it's good to be back. So this book, which um, is absolutely awesome, there's there's a lot of legal theory and, and academic scholarship, as well as a lot of really fun stories, um, really kind of laying the groundwork for where you see the future evolving in terms of governance, moving away from centralized, monopolized, um, you know, very large institutions, nation states, to a much more diverse assortment of different governing bodies, jurisdictions, sometimes overlapping. So question that I have about all this is what... What is the cause of sort of this historical ebb and flow? Because, and I, and I could be wrong, but it sort of feels like, and you mentioned this a little bit early in the book, there's, there was a period of time where there was more of a mesh of sort of overlapping networks of kind of free cities and little serfdoms here and there and, and kind of, you know, roving bands and nation states were not very strong, you know, sort of nations. And then there was a period where everything that the state just grew and subsumed all alternate forms of governance and became these monoliths. And now it seems to be dispersing again. Is that trend correct? And if so, like, what do you think is the cause of, of both the contraction and re-expansion? Wow. Okay. Uh, Isaac, you go straight to the big questions, which which are in part beyond the scope of the book. But I'm glad glad you like the book, and I think uh, your listeners will enjoy a lot of it too. It does offer a little bit of everything. That's a nice kind of a salad bar thing about the book. You don't have to read it front to back. It's got a little something for everybody. Um, and you got the big message, which is that there is this quiet revolution at work in the world, and it's transforming governments peacefully. From the bottom up and the inside out, everywhere, really, the numbers I rolled out, you read, I think, the facts section of the book, and part of that was kind of a wake-up call to me at first, and then, you know, to the rest of the world through the book, that, wow, the world is changing all around us, and I I, I was, the, you know, the guy looking for this stuff, and I didn't even know about it until I went and did the research, and that just brings us up to today. Today, we see this process kicking in, really. It's accelerating. I don't know. It's, it's really moving pretty quickly. And you're asking, what's caused this trend? If I understand your question, so what, what are the big macro forces at work in history that um, have at one point created the, these large, I don't know if I'd say monolithic, but these really large, cohesive um, states, nation states, governing institutions, and now maybe again, returning to this kind of broken up, crazy quilt pattern of smaller jurisdictions. That's kind of your question, Isaac? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, good question. <laughs> if you're one of my students, I'd say, 
Good question. What do you think? And I want to hear what you have to think, but, <laughs> but I know my job here is to give you what I think. And I'll say, um, I can say you went straight to kind of the interesting big questions. I love that kind of um, stand athwart the mountaintop and look at history, you know, from a <laughs> – from a hundred miles well, away. I, and I always want to sort of up. start there and see, like, can we, yeah. can we, can we place where this is on a historical continuum? And then we can sort of dive yeah, into some can. of the fun detail details. All right. So I think there is an oscillation. It's, I have not got it dialed in so tight. I can say, you yes, it happens over 420 years <laughs> on average, but I do believe it is a trend. And here's the interesting thing to friends of Liberty, um, among whom I number myself is that it's not, plainly good to have the movement one way or the other. We happen now to be in an environment where I believe that the transition from large, more monolithic to smaller, less monolithic modes of governance is a good thing. And in part, that's due to technology. In fact, you could say, I don't want to sound too, uh, too Marxist about this, but one of the things the Marxists did was they were very, uh, they claimed to be very scientific about history. Now, it turns out they blew it because they were a bunch of thugs and liars for the most part, but <laughs> especially evidently those that wrote their accounts of history and theory. But, but setting all that aside, they had a good point. Technology is a huge driver in history. And right now it seems to be pushing us towards a more consensual way of living together, which is resulting in more and more overlapping and most importantly, Isaac, more consensual forms of government than in times past. But I can't guarantee that's always the case. I cannot guarantee that bigger forms of governance are always more coercive. We're coming from an especially bloody history. Uh, the last century, nation states really showed their chops when it came to killing people. Uh, um, but I've actually looked at the numbers on this, Isaac, and it's not plainly on controverted, and I myself am a am undecided, and I can't claim to be an expert. There are people who are experts in this. I think it's, it's unclear whether nation states on whole, just kind of like murders, are worse than some other forms of more, shall we say, polycentric governance or non-governance. I'll just take a breath there. I think I've got us started on an answer. What do you think? Yeah, no, I, I think that's a great distinction to make. Uh, it actually reminds me of a conversation I was having about cryptocurrency with somebody recently, and the Making the distinction that centralization, whether it's of, of governance or of a particular technology, is <laughs> Roger not. Roger Bears. Yeah, Roger Bears. Yeah, centralization Excellent. is not like, or decentralization is not like an end in itself. If you're a friend of, of liberty and sort of human flourishing and, and optimizing the, the individual human experience, it's decentralization is very often a powerful force for that and a, and a check against sort of monopolies that can lead to the worst abuses of power, but it's not an inherent good by itself. And there's nothing inherently bad about, let's say if you have a lot of market power and you're really good at something and you have massive economies of scale. And so you have a, you know, very large company like an Amazon or a, or a Walmart, if it is a free market and that's the result, there's nothing inherently bad about that centralization. It can lead to, to great outcomes as long as you have the freedom of a, of a give and take. Um, but yeah, yeah, I don't know. On the historical sweep, Tom, this is something I've been really interested in. I've been reading James Scott lately, especially his new yeah. book, uh, Against the Grain. And he sort of argues that like the emergence of a, of a single you know, cereal grain um, basically enabled the the emergence of these large central states, um, which is uh -huh. kind of an, which is kind of an interesting interesting thesis. And in some ways, it's a technological one if you think of the grain and farming as, as sort of a technology. And I think 
it's it's hard to deny that the proliferation of connectivity, the internet, the information age, um, just the fact that everybody can customize their own, you know, iPhone and the the sort of age of of modularity and customization um, has to be a contributing factor. And just lowering the information costs, the the transaction costs of many uh-huh. many small transactions among independent agents instead of you know centralizing them. Um, the information has you know the the information age has made that possible. So to me, it seems easy maybe too easy, but it seems easy to say, it seems like a, a purely a technological um, explanation for this. Yeah, maybe, maybe. So I'm going to repeat some of the things you said, Isaac, because uh, I so strongly agreed with them. One is Roger Ver's podcast that you did. I listened to that and I can't pretend I listened to them all, Isaac, but that was, I will say to your other listeners, one worth listening to really interesting character who's had uh, both, you know, uh, good study and hard lessons from life. And that's one of the things Ver's pointed out. One of his lessons he shared with us, us was, yeah, decentralization could be good or bad, depending. Let's be kind of pro-person. He would probably say pro-liberty, you know, yeah. respecting people's rights and see where it goes. And I agree with him on that, and you too, since I think you find that agreeable. Um, and you also cited Scott. Now, Scott is such an interesting character, James Scott, such an interesting uh, – well, I actually don't know his character too well. I can say a little bit about that, but uh, about how he stands vis-a-vis libertarians. It's a quite interesting story from an intellectual history point of view. But at any rate, I read so I've been reading his back history, his back catalog. And what's the one I just finished? It was one of his earlier ones. Uh, it was about um, uh, Zomia, the ungoverned, uh, the art of being ungoverned. Yes, yes. Which is about this huge area in Southeast Asia where he did his field work. And uh, yeah, and it's made me start to think, Isaac, about a kind of a third category. It's maybe sensitive to. Maybe certainly the possibility, maybe the need for a kind of third category of governing systems. Scott um, makes this distinction between the ungoverned and the governed. And again, I'm kind of on the fence as between this is same kind of my approach here as a pure naturalist positivist. You know, let's just look at history and see what happens. I don't like people to suffer, but you know, you got to start with the facts. And the facts is the facts are that uh, you see an oscillation or some movement at least back and forth across this threshold from more or less fragmented forms of governance. And you also see, this is what Scott turned me on to, oscillation back and forth across a boundary of governed and ungoverned. And the nature of being ungoverned is so alien to us. It takes quite a while, I found. It takes quite a while of reading Scott to get it to start to sink in your head. These are people don't even have, and then you realize, well, of course, I read about this, but Scott makes them more real. These are people don't even have constant names. Hmm. They put on and off cultures like, like clothing, they become who they have to become because they're battered by fate, really in the form mostly of nation states trying to enslave them. And so Scott turned me on to this whole way of living. It reminded me of it, really. In a way, it's quite natural to humans. We probably evolved. Actually, for most of human history, we've been ungoverned. It's only this very recent history. And now a huge chunk of us. It's a very odd thing for humans for a huge chunk of us to be in these governed communities that so tightly governed. I'm not sure, you know, we're meant for this, but Scott has made me think about now I've spent so much time, so many years really working on forming better modes of governance. And I think we're making huge progress. I'm excited about my work there. I really think the future is going to be brighter for liberty within governed communities. But it's getting me to think about using some of those technologies, Isaac, that you, this is like the next book maybe, or the next stage of my career, using some of those technologies you refer to, to make sure people can be ungoverned. Hmm. stay ungoverned if they're there most people aren't actually for some of us it might be a move into a new and better form of non 
governance. Let's put it that way. Uh, maybe it should be called, you know, some form of governance. People living in these so-called ungoverned areas, as Scott would be first to point out, were not, you know, monsters. They weren't living in anarchy. They definitely lived in communities with rules. They just didn't have, you know, typically a king or strong man going around making people toe the line. You could call that ungoverned. It doesn't mean without, doesn't, it may mean without civilization as we understand it, as Scott observes. Oftentimes, in disparaging terms, the ungoverned are called uncivilized. The Chinese, the Han, who were constantly expanding into the area of Southeast Asia, would call them, they refer to the barbarians as cooked or less cooked, you know, raw barbarians, and then you slowly cook them so they become more and more done and edible, you know, Chinese. I'll stop there. These are interesting thoughts. So there's a, that's what I have to say about this uh, the kind of three categories, you know, polycentric governance and then monocentric governance. And then maybe this kind of third thing of ungovernance. Oh, I'm, I'm very attracted to, <laughs> to the third thing, at least the romantic ideal of it. Um, you know, so, so one of the first things I notice in getting into your book is, as you mentioned, there's almost this silent revolution going on that almost nobody notices and you and you had a really great sort of mental exercise you said what if what if there were a world map you know they have these political maps and each country is a different color or if it's the united states each state is a different color what if you had a truly accurate version that had every one of these special economic zones foreign trade zones what if what if it even had every level of municipal government or places that were you know sort of unchartered um, unclaimed? What if it had even private associations <laughs> like HOAs in different colors or the, you know, overlapping colors that shade each other? Sure. How crazy that map would look. And you have some statistics about, you know, HOAs, Homeowners Association, for example, there were, there were basically none in 1970. And now almost a quarter of Americans, 22 something percent yeah. live with, with an HOA. Special economic yeah. zones, in like 1960 or 50s, there were none, and now 75% of countries have them in some form or another. So this pl- there's proliferation— There's over 4, on some accountings. There's close to 10,000 of these SEZs. Some of them are the size of single buildings. When you go that small with an SEZ, you can have a lot of them. There so, could be 10,000 of them. I mean, this is truly an amazing thing. So so tell, tell us a little bit more about— the let's let's start with uh, the special economic zones, which, by the way, um, now I finally understand after reading your book, I drive from Charleston to Col- Charleston, South Carolina to Columbia um, every once in a while because I have relatives in Columbia. And there's a sign along the highway that just like it's like this barren stretch of highway. There's maybe some <laughs> warehouses on one side and there's just a sign that says foreign trade zone. And I've always been like, what does that mean? I never knew what it meant. Now, thanks to your book, I, th- I think I do. But but what is an SEZ? Always... Okay. Uh, oh, wait, can, I want to return to the map thing you wrote. You you, you raised this issue, Please, or this, yeah. this idea. And the map talk, the book talks about, you know, imagine, reimagine. You think about a map and you see, like, bright crayon colors and solid borders around the countries. It's the way they typically draw it. And the book tries to get people to think about, uh, alas, a map I did not create in the book. I'm actually working on creating it now with some other people. It's a huge project. There's a lot of a lot of data, but we do want to create this map where you can see all these little SEZs, which would be sprinkled all across maps of the world. And in fact, in some countries like China, they would fill most of the country. I did the numbers on this. I didn't put the research in the book because it just took too long. The footnotes to verify would just be pages because it took that long. But basically, trust me on this, by far the majority of people living in China 
live in special economic zones. And they started from basically zero in 1970 to taking over the country. So yes, I'd love to create this map someday, Isaac. I hope to give you the eye candy. I kind of have a thing about maps. I can get really crazy about this project. The eye candy of not just seeing this beautiful variegated patchwork quilt map, everything color-coded so it's logical, right? Like China's bright red where it's all Chinese central government and going off to pink where the SECs are maybe you know, more free, but also changing over time. And there, to re before we come down to the mountaintop, let's look at our view from way up here of history, not just from a long way off and way up in the sky, but also over time. And what you see, what you see happening now in the last, oh, maybe century, 50 years, really, it's a little bit like watching, like, like, a, a, like plants vegetate revegetate a volcanic island, right? It's been blasted clear of life. And then plants start popping up here and there in little pockets. And then once they start connecting, now to turn the dial to the present, we have now these pockets of life of SEZs. I don't want to say patients say they're dead lava, but whatever. <laughs> they're, they're, not a, they're not quite as, I'm going to argue for SEZs in this picture because they're more consensual. People opt to create them and move to them. They're not imposed on anybody, not in most countries. Some stories I could tell there. Nothing, none of my projects. But anyhow, you would see these pockets of life spread. That's where we are now, and then connect. And that's where we're headed to this form of governance taking over huge chunks of the world, as in China. China's ahead of the rest of the world in form, terms of forms of governance. All right, let's return to your question. SECs are special economic zones, they are areas of a country clearly de demarcated, often behind a secure border, that FTZ that you uh, pass by might have, like, you know, uh, chain link fencing, maybe even razor wire on top, coils of razor wire. Because they're, those FTZs are customs protected areas. They're actually outside the customs territory of the United States in terms of the reach of customs and duties. And that's typical of an SEZ. What an SED, SED, SEZ does is it allows the government to set aside a chunk of its area and exempt it from the usual rules. So in an FTZ, to use the U.S. example, a foreign trade zone, companies there that import goods from abroad do not have to pay the ordinary customs and duties. Now you may say, well, what good does that do them? Well, here's what good it does them. They might be engaged in transshipments. Maybe, you know, they just take in a lot of bikes from China and then they distribute them to Nicaragua and Costa Rica, and they have throughout the you know Central American Caribbean area. They have you know they have retailers, and they keep that in the foreign trade zone. They don't have to pay customs, pay customs and duties, even though they are, in terms of you know territory, they're in the United States, and they get the benefit of being in the United States. You know, rule of law and I guess the nice weather. And I guess there's some stuff on TV these days. I don't know. You get the idea. Chick Fil A, you know. <laughs> hey, that's right. Although, check this out. FTZs are for – you can't sell goods and services within them, which I think is um, – I think I could change. I've advocate, I advocate in the book. There's a long chapter. It's at the, the, the last third of the book is all about, hey, let's do stuff. Let's build stuff. What do you do when you build stuff here? And I say, let's build this, among other things, United States Special Economic Zone in which you could have a Chuck Phila operating under perhaps some different labor rules. And some different health inspection rules, and maybe that uses a blockchain to establish so, its its uh yeah its property rights. Go so on. So the current SEZ. So let's take the foreign trade zones in the U.S. that you mentioned. So it's basically typically a place where shipments are coming in and then going out, and there's no 
there's no money being exchanged or, or commerce happening there within the zone, but who, who works there? These are U.S. citizens and they drive into this special jurisdiction every day with their ID badge and then they drive out when they want to get lunch or whatever and they come back in or how does it work? Well, it could be like that, although the way these are set up, they allow this alternative zone designation process, the Foreign Trade Zone Commission does, and that means you can have designated as a foreign trade zone um, actually a single part of your warehouse. So I'll give you an example. You can have, There is an FTC not far from me over- I need to exempt County. like one room in my house from taxes. This sounds like a great idea. <laughs> well, no, no, it's not as good as it sounds. So there's a, there's a Port of San Pedro and the uh, Port of uh, Long Beach right near me. They both have foreign trade. And either one of those can also authorize as part of its F- FTZ, a single part of a warehouse in, you know, say Corona, which is the other side of Orange County. Um, they're allowed to do that. And so, yes, you could do that with your house, Isaac, but one, you wouldn't want to. Well, actually, you might. Let's think about this a little harder because the FTZs, you're not an import expert guy, as far as I know. I don't know how you fund all your, your wild, extravagant lifestyle, but I don't think you're one of those uh, import export business guys. <laughs> no. Another shade about you, bro. Um, so you're not in that line of work, but I will observe. This is an underutilized feature of FTZ. So one of your many entrepreneurial listeners might want to pursue this idea with you and me. I, I, didn't, I got the law, you know, but I don't, I don't have all the business ideas. But I'll tell you, FTZs are exempt from local and state ad valorem taxes also. So if you store your Mercedes, your collector's edition Mercedes there, you don't owe property taxes to the local mm. government on that automobile. That could be pretty sweet. Yeah. yeah, my my cars are pay, usually you, gotta, you know only like thirty dollars for the annual property taxes, but I still like the idea. So so these are. <laughs> wait, so, I got to give you the downside. Yeah, yeah, Isaac. give me the, the downside. downside. Is people are going to be checking out your house. They're going to make sure that you have wired off, roped off, fenced off, caged <laughs> off that part of your house, and you got to keep papers, etc. Interesting. Okay. Okay. So so in the U.S. they're they're fairly limited in terms of the scope of what what's happening within them. Like are they're not, there aren't people living in them. They aren't based, they aren't like full cities, but in China, this so, is happening. Yes. There's a variety of these special, I like the, the general term special jurisdictions. Cause when okay. you use special economic zone, that's a good description for many of these places, but not all of them, because there's a lot more than economics going on in these places. Look at China. They have whole cities now, whole regions are part of so-called special economic zones. And the rules that they pass that are special in those zones are not just restricted to economics. It includes things, well, they go, it bleeds over into other parts of the world, like, you know, contract law, for example, residency requirements, work visas, you know, that, sure, it affects the economy, what doesn't? But it's more than economics. So I say special jurisdictions, and they come in all fly, flavors and sizes, and they're getting bigger, and they're getting more complex. The trend is towards more, bigger, and more city-like. The most recent to hit the front pages was the NEOM project announced in Saudi Arabia. And it will be um, a, a big chunk. I wish I had the numbers in front of me. I'm driving. A big chunk of Saudi. You can see this one from the satellite. A lot. The pro- one problem that map you and I discussed earlier was a lot of these SECs are very small. You know, they'd, they'd be the size of pinpricks because it's a single warehouse, you know, or even the port of Long Beach from, you know, 100 miles up is not that big. Neon would be visible from space easily, easily. 
I haven't done the math on it. I suspect it's about the size of Connecticut. You know, it's a big chunk wow. of, of, mostly, of mostly nothing. But the uh, Saudi, Saudi government, really in the form of the now, can I say this, reigning uh, crown prince, given that he's kind of engaged right now and getting rid of all the other members of the aristocracy. Um, um, he is, they've already created King Abdul Economic City there, which was at one time the largest capital project in the world, uh, a city that's planned to become the size of Washington, D.C. with about two million residents and all the fittings out of a normal city, you know, downtown residences, mosques, uh, ports, all that stuff. Neom's going to be even bigger. Uh, um, I tried to get numbers on the eventual population, and all they'll say is they expect there to be more, more robots than people. Wow. And they, the advertisements of this place show this is, goes how, it shows you how far – I think this is a wonderful thing. And it shows you how far beyond mere economics a special jurisdiction could go. The advertisements for NEOM have shown women not wearing scarves or anything of that nature, doing yoga and running. And I tell you, if you're a friend of humanity, especially it's feminine half, you can't help but look at that and think that would be great for a lot of women. Uh, a lot of people generally, I think, in fact, I'll just throw this as an aside. I think people could be really surprised by Saudi Arabia and the rest of the world where women have in former times been excluded from a lot of economic activity. Once the Saudis give those smart women, I've taught some of those women, we had exchange program, get those smart, motivated women, you know, behind literally the wheel of the, you know, the car, which they've done now in Saudi Arabia, stand back world. It's not just going to be oil. I mean, they're going to they need to do that because they can't rely on oil and they're doing it. And it's exciting. It's huge. And it's more than economics. It's about liberating people. I don't know if that project's going to work out that way. I've been heartbroken many a time. But I do think there's hope that SEZ's special jurisdictions done correctly. That's why I'm in this business can really be a liberating force for, for humanity. And I feel, you know, that's worth working on. So one of the manifestations of this kind of, um, you know, special jurisdiction is for a piece of land that's, you know, maybe uh, owned by or part of one sovereign country to be carved out and have someone else come in and maybe bring the rules or laws or, you know, I guess um, sovereignty, maybe I'm not sure how it all works of a different country of another existing country in or something like it, maybe a conjunction of them. And that obviously has some challenges if, you know, rule of law, as you mentioned in your book, is is incredibly important and different attributes of it, um, you know, the, the predictability, et cetera. But having that sort of emerge over time, evolve out of a culture um, seems to make sense. But then bringing it in sort of whole hog from sort of the outside and saying, let's try this here where it's like a, an import from somewhere else has a lot of a lot of problems and gets a lot of backlash. Um, and you told in the book a story. I've never heard this before. I'd love for you to talk about it. An, <laughs> an attempt to do this by Henry Ford um, oh, a long one. time wow. ago. Talk about Fordlandia. Fordlandia. So uh, as you noted, the book has stories in it. Uh, this in the form of a case study. And that's legit. But man, is it a great story also? Because it starts with the Ford Motor Company, sort of the Google of its day, the high tech, powerful company and even more Google in its day, because this is before people really were accustomed to having huge companies really kind of running huge chunks of the world. And that was Ford, because the Ford Motor Company not only owned its factories in Detroit and other places, but owned huge swaths of upstate 
Michigan and Minnesota because they needed a lot of wood for their cars. And Henry Ford was completely into the company towns. He dictated the details of their of their gardens, of what the kids should learn in school. He was a big fan of teaching them traditional dances of the American people. And we're not talking about Indians. We're talking about, you know, his people. It's such a fascinating character, Henry Ford. And he accomplished a lot. You can't help but read, as I have recently, his autobiography. It's a wonderful book. Too much neglected. Very frank. He did a lot of that writing himself. Not always things that you want to hear from a man you admire, but nonetheless, he achieved a lot of great things, but Fordlandia was not among them. In Fordlandia, <laughs> it ended, it started with this great hubris by Henry Ford. Nobody does hubris like Henry Ford. He once said, I, I'm going to peg this on him. And maybe it's unfair because he never came out and said it, but I think he wanted to basically have a shot at creating men from scratch. Hmm. Indeed, he saw it as reforming, reforming these Brazilians who haven't enjoyed the benefits of civilization, Midwest style. We're going to give it to them. And I won't say good and hard. Because people were – he didn't force it on them, well, until after they got to working with him. But, you know, he built the factory down there in the middle of the jungle. He, he didn't, but, you know, his people did. They did kind of a botched job of it. Henry Ford was remarkably for a guy who ended up running so much stuff so well, very lackadaisical about planning. He just kind of dove in. He had – he kind of dismissed experts. He said, oh, you're smart men ready to roll up their sleeves. We'll figure it out, which I guess, you know, kind of works a lot of the times. But it did not work thousands of miles away from home. Up the Tahapos River, which haha, it turns out is unnavigable for much of the year because guess what? There's a dry season because they didn't look into that. They also didn't look into a number of details, including the fact that basically you could never, ever get a rubber plantation to work in the Brazilian rainforest. Because why? Although rubber trees are native, it was all about rubber. Rubber was a huge commodity of its day. It's still an important commodity, actually. There's no real synthetic substitute for natural rubber, and this is especially true in Henry Ford's day, and he needed a lot of rubber for his cars. And you got to grow it, and you can't do that in Detroit or upstate Michigan. So he had to get it somewhere. Traditionally, in Central America, they did it by tapping individual trees out in the forest. And on a plantation, you put all the trees together, which is, which is like a buffet for all the many natural pests of the rubber trees. When you put them together, boom, they get consumed by all kinds of stuff, insects, fungi. It's the Brazilian rainforest. You name it. It is out to eat. So it never worked. Probably they still don't have plantations for rubber trees in Brazil that I know of. It's mostly done in regions of the world like the East Indies where there are no natural kind of predators of the rubber tree. So I'll stop there. It ended in fire and tears. Actually, I won't stop because you want to hear how it ends. It ended in fire and tears with the Brazilians burning down Fordlandia smashing the hated work clock. They hated punching in and out of, of, you know, the factory. Oh, they didn't like the food. Ford tried to ban liquor. Midwest values. That did not fly. <laughs> that did not fly. No prostitutes allowed anywhere near his land. So they set a little station up in a boat on the river. Total mess culturally. Oh, they were, they were seasteaders. They were early seasteaders. <laughs> so seasteaders plan. I work with seasteaders. They are wonderful for planning. It'll almost drive you crazy, but these people love spreadsheets. I don't know if they're doing it right, but good Lord, they are trying. They have respect for experts. Ford, even even Lindbergh, I don't, I don't mean like Lindbergh didn't have respect for experts either, but I mean a man of that caliber who knew how to get things done. Lindbergh who worked with the Ford to create their wonderful Ford uh, uh, tri-motor. 
But uh, he said it was a mess working with them. They just didn't ever plan. They just kind of threw just anybody at the job. And you don't want to do that with an airplane. <laughs> and you don't want to do it thousands of miles away from home trying to build essentially an entire government. That was half the size of Connecticut, by the way. It's a huge project out in the middle of uh, well, Brazilian rainforest. So you have some some ideas you mentioned before for the U.S. There's a lot of public land. There's a lot of opportunity to take this idea of these special jurisdictions and try it in a much bolder way here in the U.S. Can you talk a little bit about sort of sure. Tom Tom Bell's plan for uh, special jurisdictions in the U.S.? All right. If it's going to be in the U.S., I got to include the W for mom. Tom W. Bell. Tom you know W. Bell. Now. Sorry. We didn't get around to telling the story, speaking of names, Isaac, as to why you have special claim to the subtitle of the book. But we'll return to that before we leave, I hope. Let me, let me tell you about U.S. <laughs> thank you for asking about U.S. special economic zones. There's no such thing existing now. This is my proposal in outline uh, for creating these special institutions. And what are they? They would be areas owned by the federal government, such as BLM lands currently lying fallow across much of the West. But the feds have federal land in a lot of places, including also included would be uh, former military bases like, for example, Roosevelt Roads on the far extreme end of Puerto Rico. A very interesting area to look at if you're interested in pursuing this project. And how would it work? Federal government would say within this zone, we create a special economic zone. It's not just economics, though. We could call this a special jurisdiction, too, because in this zone, some or all federal laws will be suspended. There'll be no income tax, no capital gains tax. Won't be any environmental regs, no labor regs. I could go on all day, Isaac. You can see that th- you could put a lot of things on the table there. Maybe they'd say, no, 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 you got to live under environmental laws. Well, how about labor? Well, okay. You know, this is a matter of negotiating, which is good, by the way. It's good to have a lot of squish in these government programs. It's true, liberty will give way a little bit, but nothing happens if the upfront ask is too big. And here you can do it in a nice graduated way, sort of like we've already established your price, Matt, uh, you, what you are, madam. Now we're arguing over the price. We've already established federal government. You're willing to sell some of your sovereignty because you're so hurting for money. Now we're trying to settle on the price. And why would the federal government do this? Because they get money on the table now. Basically, the way it work is the property would be leased. Say, oh, I don't know. Let's just pick Google again. It's a big company. They're kind of interested in city building, at least infrastructure. But let's say Google gets involved, not just in the infrastructure, but the software side of governance. They should be. That's where the money is. And they decide, hey, we want to try our hand at governing. And they win what is an open bidding process. Yes, they have to beat out Microsoft and Apple and all the other hotshot companies that want to have a shot at governance. Maybe Apple gets a spot in Nevada. Microsoft takes a big chunk of Texas, whatever. There's a market. Federal government says, Government lands for lease, long-term lease, special terms. What terms? You get to make your own regs subject to our oversight. No taxes, but lease payments. Give us that money now, please. There'll be a double payment up front and monthly payments. And then if you go big and it turns into another Hong Kong, we, the federal government, also get an upside interest there. You know, So we're guaranteed a certain amount, and then our upside is huge. You have to guarantee we'll suffer no net loss of tax revenues in these zones. That's pretty easy to do because they're government lands already. And... This is important, Isaac. You have to pay some money to the local states, too. The hosting states must get money from this. Otherwise, well, let's say it wouldn't be fair. We can also say it wouldn't fly politically. This is the way I see the political economy. And you 
dress it up however you need to. And it is fair to say, you know, if you've got big Google town out in West Texas, people are going to start driving there and they're going to use the services of the, of the sorry, the Texas, uh, you know, highway patrol and their roads and, you know, other stuff. Some people will live in nearby Lubbock and that's going to strain their school system. Anyhow. The point is you are liquidating the value, this is a, a very brute way to put it, of the United States federal government's sovereignty, which is currently lying fallow. They are sitting on a fortune. They have not yet figured out how to liquidate it. To a libertarian of a certain bent, this is a little galling that they take our liberty and then they sell it back to us. And I say, make your peace with the retiring regime. I myself am not interested in taking up fisticuffs against the United States federal government. But I'll stop there. You get the idea. That's the United States Special Economic Zone coming soon, hopefully, to federal lands near you. I only put it out in the book. I'm looking for, you know, sponsors, finance people, whatever you got. (laughs) I I absolutely love it. And and the only thing more offensive than the idea of my freedom being taken away and then sold back to me is my freedom being taken away and not getting the chance <laughs> to try to buy it back. So well put. I'm, I'm okay with that. So you have a, a whole section in the book um, really that dives into sort of the theory of good law and you, and you base it heavily on the idea of consent as kind of the foundation for this. And and you have a really cool series of diagrams that consent is not just binary. It's not just you consent or you don't consent. There's this whole range. There's sort of these subsets of, you know, implied consent, explicit consent. Uh, and then you have all this other subset of like universal, all these different phrases. And and it just kind of is a great reminder of how complex even the notion of consent is. And to me, the the great the thing that this suggests is that rather than deciding, you know, that rather than saying we need to decide what isn't, isn't consent, or we need to decide, you know, whether or not this kind of law is good. And this, it's more about having a process that allows for a lot of competition and discovery. And I think that's kind of what all these, a proliferation of legal environments and jurisdictions it's not so much that any one of them, the goal is to have one that finally gets it right, but to have an open market where there's a constant discovery um, for which one is, is better for, for which circumstances. Would that, be a, would that be a fair way to describe it? Or do you think there really is also a value in just like getting better, um, you know, better laws or, or constitutional structures uh, in regards to, to consent? Huh. Good question. Um, I'm I mean, glad it can that be you both, picked up. But- yeah, I think it is a little both. I'm glad you picked up on the importance that consent plays in that relatively brief theoretical section of the book. And I want to tell my fellow uh, political philosophers, and I call myself a political philosopher. That's what I studied. I got my master's in that stuff. Um, that I think they'll find the approach here different from the usual libertarian take, and uh, refreshingly so. I'm not saying you'll necessarily agree with it, but it'll be. I think there's a very strong argument to be made for consent playing kind of a center pole role in the political philosophy of people who appreciate liberty. And I'll just leave it at that and say the rest, as you noted, is in the book. Let's talk specifically about your question, and that is, you know, should should you think about, I'll put it this way, should, should we think about finding an ideal form of government, or should we think more about the process through which people choose their governments? And I say definitely the latter. Um, I believe that different modes of government can do a better job of measuring the consent of those uh, governed, of responding to it, 
So I do think there are modes of governance and, and institutions. I describe some in the book, uh, some that might be called radical, I think are quite sensible. But I do think there's some institutions of governance that work better than others in getting consent. But that said, because I think consent is so important, it's got this, you know, this central role to play in holding up our political philosophy, our ideals, really. Um, if people choose something else and they all sign on the dotted line and they want to go into some institution I myself look at and say, ah, looks a little bit like a Roach Motel to me, that's their call. I got to let them do that. The important thing is we let these things happen consensually. And as my book describes, we don't throw our hands up in frustration like, like bless his heart, Lysander Spooner, and say, I didn't sign it. It's not justified. That's kind of a – I'm just going to say that's not the only approach to the problem of justification. Another approach is to say, nah, that system of governance is not as justified as this alternative one. And that one is better you know, than most. Maybe we could do better. And the goal is not, Isaac, to stake our claim to the best, most consensual government ever. If consent is a test, governance has to change because people's preferences change over time. At some margin, governments have to change if they're going to be responsive to consent. But we don't know. We don't know. We don't know exactly where it will end up. And all we can do is try to make sure that we climb up that ladder of consent. We get close. We get as close as we can to that gold standard that Lysander Spooner picked out in his wonderful tract, uh, "No Treason: The Constitution of No Authority." We could maybe someday, with regard to almost all forms of governance that affect us, get to the point where we expressly consent to every use of coercive force against us. That is the goal. I don't know if it's possible, but it's worth working towards. That's. Uh, I actually have a picture of Lysander Spooner hanging on my wall to my left as we as we speak here. Um, you you mentioned something really interesting in the book that actually caught me by surprise, and I'd love for you to talk about it a little bit. So. You have a problem with democracy, as I think any sort of clear thinking person does. And this is this has been a bit on the rise. Um, people like Jason Brennan's um, work uh, on, you know, the problems with democracy. And, you know, I, I mean, public choice theory, I think, does a great job of revealing sort of the incentive problems baked into the structure. You know, you vote and it really doesn't cost you anything. So you're going to you're going to give, you know, votes that you don't you wouldn't actually behave that way if you had money on the line, et cetera. So you get these weird incentives. So you start, you say, yeah, I have a problem with democracy. I used to sort of think like many people are starting to that, you know, there's, there's sort of too much of it, but now it sounds like you, your problem with democracy is actually maybe that you think there's not enough and maybe you like democracy. You just think it needs to be, we need to actually double down on democracy. You have this idea of double democracy. Yeah. Tell me, tell me what you mean by that. I'd love to. In fact, um, I've stopped driving. I'm parked now. I want to read you the section, just a very brief one from the book. This is the beginning of chapter 3.5, titled Double Democracy, where, in fact, I cite uh, Jason Brennan, whose work I really admire. I cite also Brian Kaplan, whose work you might know of. If you don't, Mm -hmm. you should. So here's how it reads. If democracy were standing for election, its odds would not look good. Judging from the results now coming in, voting is losing. Dot, dot, dot. Commentators excoriate democracy as ignorant, irrational, and broken, broken, broken. And every one of those brokens actually use the word broken. So, so yes, um, a lot of libertarians also, you know, not just, you know, maybe especially libertarians, like, like our friends, Brian Cap and Jason Brennan, a little skeptical of democracy. I used to be that way too. I used to say like everybody else, well, everyone in my cohort, democracy is two wolves and a lamb deciding what to have for lunch. 
cute. I used to say that. Now I think the problem is the wrong kind of democracy, or rather not enough of the right kind. The problem is giving the keys to the car to the mob. Mobs are not good at driving cars. If you want to get from point A to point B, you should borrow from an institution. If you really want to manage things right, you should borrow from an institution. If you're looking for democratic procedures that has had to evolve to work efficiently and manage things well, and that is the corporate commercial uh, institution. We know, you know, it's kind of the modern business hmm. commercial corporation. And there it's done on a one person per share basis. And I happen to believe that's an important part, should be an important part of the future governments that, that, that we might want to choose. It's the kind of government that a lot of us are choosing one share per vote when we move to HOAs, because it turns out like say these a, a residential, there's different institutions, a residential cooperative um, uh, corporation like my parents used to live in down in Arkansas. If you owned two of the units in these apartment buildings, they kind of run like co-ops or, um, or co uh, uh, condominiums. You own two apartments, you get two votes for the board of directors. Same thing with you know shares of Apple. You own a lot of shares of Apple, you get more votes. It makes perfect sense. Why would you invest more than anybody else if you don't get more votes for managing the corporation? I think and, we should have that for and you can sell our your private vote. You can You can sell your, sure. your vote along with your share, yeah. Well, actually, I would say with regard – I think we should have share – yeah. I think there should be some liquidity for some of the shares of our future com communities. Uh, that's one way they differ from our present private communities. But there also would be shares held by residents. So that's hmm. part of double democracy. So I think we need more democracy. We need to have communities that are owned by the people who live in them – who thereby can elect boards that run and manage the whole community. This is the way homeowner associations, residential cooperative corporations, uh, condominiums are run. Uh, Cake City, I mentioned that earlier, is a privately – Neom also going to be privately – it's going to be a big private corporation. You can own shares of that. So that's one part of democracy. Think about Detroit. Why is Detroit different from, say, Pelega or take another – take, take uh, Highland, Colorado. There's lots of reasons why Highland, Colorado, one of the larger HOAs in the country. It's got schools. It's got you know roads and parks and stores and businesses. There's a good reason why it looks different from Detroit. There are lots of reasons those two cities are different, but one reason is nobody owns Detroit. Tragedy of the commons. Somebody owns every square inch of Highland, Colorado, and there is somebody who loses money if there is graffiti or trash or broken park benches or dangerous swing sets. That is not the case in Detroit because it's unowned. It's like a stray animal. We need to own our communities. If you want to love a community, it has to be owned. If it's not owned, it's not loved. So owned communities where the management is not handed to the mob, it's handed to the people who frankly invest in the community by living there, by owning property, or maybe by investing in it. Sure, like you mentioned. Where's the other side of double democracy? And here I'm going to go more democratic than even the left-wingers and progressives that Kaplan and Brennan are battling against. I think everybody, even children, felons, hell, I'll say illegal, if that's what you want to call them, immigrants, should have one vote per person to strike down any particular law or officer to remove, not kill the officer, but to remove from <laughs> office any member of the government. That is the other side of double democracy. I call these two, one is constructive. That is the one share per vote. If you own the community, you have more say in governing it because frankly, you, you spent more money, time and effort, you know, building this community. You should have more say. 
by the way, I'd like to have included in this system of governance vesting for longtime residents. I think it'd be nice to have a ceremony every year, in fact. You stayed here another year. We're so glad you're here. Here's another share so you can vote in the governance of our community. And old timers would say, well, I got, you know, 23 votes for that board, youngin. And that's a good thing because people who live in a community actually know how it works. There's wisdom to be tapped there, which we are losing now. Anyhow, that's the constructive side of a double democracy. The corrective side is where the mob doesn't have its hands on the steering wheel, but does get to put its foot on the brake hmm. because the mob feel, I won't say the mob, the people, even the felons, even the people who maybe didn't actually check in with the border control b- patrol before they walked in and did your gardening. Even though those people, everyone, I'm just as human as anyone else. Everybody's equal in that in terms uh, that they should be respected. Their rights should not be violated. They should not be pushed around by thugs or oppressed by irrational laws. And that protects a private community from an oligarchy. You have to worry that a private community where the owners and investors get more votes in management is going to become an oligarchy. It's not just a libertarian, you know, it's not just a progressive kind of club waved around in libertarians. Libertarians should look at ancient history and read it. Aristotle, right? It happens. No, people today are just like the ancient Greeks in terms of incentives. If they could have oligarchies, we could have them. Double democracy protects against that because it creates this kind of uh, nervous reaction. Let's the people say, out and pull back from the fire. Stop, hit the brakes. Doesn't give them the steering wheel. But if they say you got a crappy president, he's beating up our people. We don't like the chief of police and we don't like this rule. You can't have dogs. OK, hmm. we love our dogs. We're striking all that stuff. And the management has to straighten this out. They could say, well, we're going to put in another president. I don't know if you're going to like her. We'll find out. But they're going to have to fix those problems if you do it right. That's double democracy. Correct. That's, a, even constructive. that's an absolutely fascinating idea, because when I think about you know, similar to how we, we were talking about, you know, centralization, decentralization or not, neither is sort of inherently good. When I think about populism or sort of mass movements, half the time they're frightening when they're mass movements, you know, clambering for, I want you to give me stuff, you know, pay for my this, pay yeah. for my that, or let's just, you know, whatever. When they are, but half the time they are inspiring and they have led to the downfall of horrible dictatorships and in all kinds of oppression. And when you think about the harnessing that sort of populist sentiment as a hedge against oppression, as a stop mechanism to something bad, some overreach, um, while not providing it sort of this lawmaking ability to, you know, to go and sort of create, you know, a bunch of special, you know, a bunch of, uh, you know, carve up a bunch of giveaways and pork barrel and all this kind of stuff. That's a really Mm -hmm. fascinating combination, Tom. That's, I've not heard that before. You know, it was funny, by the way, thank you, Isaac, because you get it. And and I'm not saying other people don't get it, but I'm in a, I won't say frustrating. It's fun, but it's an interesting place to be as an author. My, I can feel my book kind of downloading in heads everywhere, and it's nice to see a smart guy like you. I mean, you're the least of my sort of concerns, Isaac. If I don't reach Isaac, I have no hope in this world, <laughs> but I'm glad you get it. And I'll tell you, when I started researching this, I discovered it could be just, you know, uh, I'm not a good researcher. It could be that, although as you can attest, that book has a lot of footnotes. Oh yeah. And I actually have professionals helping me, but I didn't find a lot on what is sometimes called negative voting. I don't like, just like I don't like to say positive and negative rights. I think that's actually not what li- Friends of Liberty, libertarians, classical liberals should say. Never positive negative rights. I could get into that, but 
I don't think we should call. I don't want to call it negative voting. That's what some people call it, mm, though. Veto I don't want to call power it negative, or something like that. Veto power. Yeah, veto. They call it that. I like to say corrective. You know. But anyhow, the point is, there's not that much literature on it. It's not used a lot. Um, it, it is used, but mostly in non-governing contexts. It's sometimes incorporated into corporate structures, sometimes into trusts, but at, never at the scale or for the ends that I've advocated. I will admit, as an attorney, believe it or not, given how um, creative some of my work is, to use a, a positive word, um, actually, like every attorney, I'm a little conservative about creating new institutions. And I got to say, I always want to say, you know, I'm just you know taking an old institution and doing something different with it. And here I have to admit, I'm ramping it up a lot. <laughs> I did not come up with this idea, but I kind of pump, I'm pumping it up for this double democracy to a larger scale. But I think it's scalable. I think it's much scale more. That's the thing, Isaac, as you said, as a firewall, it's much more scalable yeah. than management. We can get six people together and they can decide, you know, what flavor of ice cream should we get for our party? You get 23 people, 100 million, whatever. You're done. You're never I mean, going to get it. You know, in many ways, you you kind of see something like this in the corporate world in, in the following way, where let's say, you know, shareholders are the only ones who are actually voting on, you know, who the CEO is going to be or, or whatnot. However, the mass of consumers who may not be shareholders at all, if a company goes too far with something, the sort of backlash in terms of reputation, social media, whatever, almost kind of acts as that in a way um, because, because their, their revenue has to come from those customers. Um, So it's almost a, it's almost a similar process where you have kind of a a rule making vote by shareholders and then sort of a, you know, a hammer to to sort of, (laughs) you know, punish if you go too far in a way and, and you get the sort of the the check of of the populist um you know don't don't oppress us sort of thing along with the uh, avoiding the excesses of you know appealing to the masses with all of your well, decisions well um, sure isaac but that's for you know uh, uh apple computer or or uber and the problem is we can't really do that very well with governments right yet yet and I'm a little worried, even with a more private form of government, it would still be difficult to implement that. I think it would. This is one of those places where I'm going to say, look, you can consent whatever you want to, buddy, as long as you know, you're know you not coerced. But I really think institutionally it would be good to have something built in where people can get rid of bad guys, bad people, and bad rules. Hmm. Uh, very, very fascinating. So I've got – I want to ask a final question. Mm-hmm. And this – you know, this, this gem was – in the last section of the book, and it was like, oh, now I see what Tom is up to. Tell us about the idea for Ulex. Ah, Ulex. Well, thanks for asking. Although I, I will say before you hang up, we should give you credit for the subtitle of the book in that you advocated for um, I, I think you want to cop to this because Cambridge agreed with you. You opted for um, from the nation state to stateless nations. And we, I had a little discussion on Facebook with my friends and you foremost among them had smart things to say. At that time, you didn't convince me. I went with something else and Cambridge on its own came up with your own idea and um, they kind of forced it down my throat. But I got the question mark. They see, didn't like the question mark. See, you're the you're the legal guy where you want. You want to have 
accurate, descriptive language <laughs> where, where all I care about is the entertainment value. I like the alliteration, you know? <laughs> You're all showbiz. You and Cambridge both. You guys are just all showbiz. I'm the only serious person. <laughs> Anyhow, back, back to Ulex. All right, Ulex is an open source legal operating system. And to understand better how that's supposed to work, Let's start with the analogy that chapter starts with, and that is computing. So I argue in that chapter, we can learn about the future of government by studying the future of computing. Because why? Because rules are rules. In both cases, you have people writing formal rules that run systems. But the cool thing about computing is it's evolving much more rapidly than governments. So what did we see in computing? Recently, some really interesting stuff. First, you had the invention of the computer, so that's like creating a government. Okay, interesting enough. But then the next development is, well, what are they doing at first? Every time they build a computer, they build the operating system from scratch. It's the first time they built this thing, right? Second, third computer, every operating system is from scratch because each computer is kind of you know, sui generis. It's unique. Then the scientists at Bell Labs in 1970 come up with this idea of writing an operating system that works across computers. We say, duh, but actually in its day, that was kind of, that was kind of brilliant. That's Thompson and Ritchie, uncelebrated among most people, pioneers of com computing. Then they got to the next step in the development of computers, and that was the advent of personal computers, the spread of personal computers to desktops and offices and homes all over the world. And that created competition in operating systems. So now you had operating systems working across computers, not just one Apple computer, but lots of them, not just one PC, but lots of them, and competing against each other so that Apple's operating system has to get better to get market share from Microsoft's. All right. Last step in computer science history is the advent of Linux, an open source operating system that basically anyone can access. You can open up the hood of Linux and read all the code, and you can write your own version of Linux. You can't commercialize it. That's because it's licensed under open source terms. But you can innovate, you can learn how it works, you can innovate, etc. Governments are still about 1970. Right now, almost every government has an operating system it built from scratch, just like the way they first built computers. And governments have been at this, let's just note, for a long time, but whatever. <laughs> um, only recently have governments come up with operating systems that operate across platforms. So Dubai, for example, and it's uh, Dubai as... Uh, International Financial Center. It, it, people misdescribe what's going on. I'll give you the brief and unfair description, which is not totally inaccurate, but not accurate enough for my cranky taste. Anyhow, Dubai kind of imported the common law of English, England and Wales to its commercial district because nobody wants to do business under Sharia law. Sharia law doesn't allow interest on loans, as I understand it. Apparently, there were some problems with the market. If you want to get investment bankers and financiers, they didn't like Sharia law. So Dubai said, well, we want you to come here. So we're going to change the rules. We're going to import the common law of England and Wales. You can kind of view Hong Kong in a way as a as kind of a forced implementation of an operating system from abroad. I mean, you can regard colonialism generally like that. But um, the more recent and interesting example is Honduras. Uh, I've done some work there and they have this interesting ZA program. It's described in the book. Um, Honduras is always too interesting a place, actually, even at this moment, they have a contested election. But the point is, in Honduras, the uh, government there said, in these special economic zones, we want to invite outside investors to come and bring their legal systems with them. Now, we're not clear how that's going to work out in the details, 
but the general idea is we provide not a clean metal stall, right? There's going to be some unknown rules that continue to apply, like a criminal law, and you don't get to fly your own flag and sing your own national anthem. It is Honduras. It will remain Honduras. But the commercial law, your education system, even your prison system, with our oversight, you get to run it yourself, says Honduras, in theory, under the ZA system. That gets us up to, I'll take a breath, 1970. <laughs> Actually, we're kind of now getting into, with the advent of these SEZs, kind of the era of all these little computers competing against each other. But we don't have much by way of operating systems that you know, kind of operate across many jurisdictions. Some stuff like that, but nothing like what I want to create, which is ULEX. There's other ways to do it, of course, but ULEX, with that, I want to go with those last two steps in a fell swoop. I want to create an open source legal system, which anyone can use and tinker with, et cetera, um, that works across jurisdictions. And this would allow SEZs and CSTEDs and special jurisdictions of all types to have, have, to have access to a set of rules that uh, I dare say are pretty good because I didn't write them for the most part. There's a few little things I had to craft. Most of these rules are from private sources. I took my shopping basket to, it turns out, the kind of library. There are these places, <laughs> metaphorically speaking, libraries of rule sets that come from private parties, like the American Law Institute, which is a non-government you know, charitable kind of educational institution, or the American Bar Association, or the Uniform Law Commission. There's a number of these private organizations that basically create sets of rules for good reasons. I mean, it's really, speaking as a legal guy, you know, it's kind of like God's work. It's like, you know, for the public good. So it's really great stuff they do. And those rules don't have flags attached to them. So they don't raise the same, they could raise some, but not as sharp a concerns about colonialism. And furthermore, they don't reflect any particular interest. I won't deny they come from a certain cultural background, et cetera. There's no such thing as like, you know, a, a neutral source of rules, keep <laughs> wishing. But these rules are good. And they're not just from experts, they're from history, especially the restatements of the common law. I love those things. The American Law Institute created those and they result from, they result from people reading a lot of common law court opinions and summing up the holdings in these nice, neat, beautifully organized rules, things like, you know, assault is the offensive touching of another person, you know? So, so, so that's an example. So Ulex gathers all these privately sourced rules, puts them in one big place in a, in a basket and says, hey, you want to run a government? This will pretty much do it for you. I got some contract rules here. I got rules for creating corporations. You got a family. We got rules for that. You want to do an optional criminal law module? I actually think you can get by without, but if you want to do that, here's some good rules for that. Here's how you define a person. Here's, you know, how to register property, all that stuff. It's all there. I just collected it, put it in one place, made it easy for people to use. And if we can get SEZs using something like ULEX, we're going to see some wonderful effects because it'll operate across jurisdictions. You'll start getting those wonderful network effects. We need to return to computer history because there's a last step that's missing. And what's that? The internet. That's what really made computers powerful is when they networked. If we can do that with governments, and of course, I, you know, I'm not talking about an empire, colonies, anything like that. I'm talking about kind of a flat network where different places run the same rules, which they freely adopted. And together, like Linux, open source software is our model here, they curate, that's how Linux works. There's kind of a community, kind of a loosely knit community of people who maintain the code. And I want us to do that with ULEX so that all these many communities 
say a seastead in the middle of Pacific Ocean. They have a, you know, a fight and they need to know, was it assault when that guy tugged on the other guy's uniform? It didn't actually draw blood, but the other guy said, get your hands off me. They can go to Ulex and find the answer. And if they have to litigate, maybe they could go to you know, some experts who have all the answers because they've studied Ulex. Anyhow, oh. that's further down the road. You get the idea. It's absolutely amazing. I mean, I'm, I'm envisioning like a, like a GitHub for law and like, Hey, uh-huh. guess what guys? I just built exactly. this. I just built this app on our Ulex to uh, <laughs> describe how, uh, you know, fractional ownership shares of this house will work in the case of property theft. What do you tell me what you think? Do I have any bugs in my code? <laughs> That's it. You get it, Isaac. That's it. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Incredibly exciting stuff. Um, Tom W. Bell, his book, Your Next Government, question mark. From the nation state to stateless nations, check it out. Um, really, really exciting stuff. It's really hard to to look at this stuff and not feel just a tremendous amount of optimism and excitement. And I know you're kind of like the Indiana Jones of international law traveling all <laughs> over the world. You get to see these things firsthand. Um, are you pretty optimistic that this is this the rate of of expansion of these things is going to continue to pick up? feel pretty good about it. And I'm putting my money where my mouth is, so to speak. I'm making, you know, career choices that uh, count on uh, current trends continuing. But I got to admit, I'm kind of a congenital optimist. In fact, the closing chapter of the book introduces people to the notion of the gold swan. You know, people talk about the black swan, uh, <laughs> Nissan Taleb's notion of a black swan. There are these dread risks out there. We don't even know what direction they're going to come from. They totally blindside us and they lay us flat. Like a 2008-9 financial crisis or you know, like an asteroid or something. And those exist. But they're also gold swans. Because I don't think humans are wired up to really appreciate things like the Bitcoin rise in price. We're all kind of standing back going, what? Actually, most of us. Some people are going, uh, that's the math. I told you this is going to happen. <laughs> you guys will never learn. And some and of us are pretending that we're the ones who knew all along. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Well, uh, but a similar thing I think could happen with governments because governance is so important for human well-being, not just prosperity, although certainly that so many things go wrong when government goes wrong. It's like the health of a human. You can't put a price on the health of a community, but when it's sick, it's terrible. And nation states have done some wonderful things, but they've also created a lot of suffering. And uh, we need a better way of doing things. And maybe we can find that. And when we do, we'll be surprised at how good it can be, I think. We don't expect that swan, the gold swan. There really do exist black swans in nature. Down in like New Zealand, there's some native bird that's in the swan family. It's actually very dark. <laughs> black swan, natural. I don't know if there's any gold swans, but I'm, that's how optimistic I am. I think they could exist in the realm of governance. If we can get this right, things are going to get really, really good, unexpectedly good, surprisingly good. Tom W. Bell, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Great to talk to you. Likewise, Isaac. Thanks a lot. Hey, I want to tell you about two other podcasts real quick. The first is called Forward Tilt. Check it out. Five to 10 minute episodes about specific ideas to improve your personal and professional life. Basic thoughts, uh, concepts, just a single one in each episode boiled down, 
real quick. If you like that five to 10 minute format, check it out wherever it is that you subscribe and listen to podcasts it's called Forward Tilt. Pretty good if I do say so myself. The second one is called Office Hours. It's TK Coleman, frequent guest of this podcast, and myself. And we spend about 30 minutes every week answering specific questions from specific people. Could be you if you send us a question about success in the workplace, primarily primarily professional success for people sort of early in their careers, but it actually covers a pretty broad range. Anything from how to ask for a raise, how to impress somebody, how to know what kind of work to do, how to what to what to do when someone won't respond to your emails, anything like that. It's full of wit and wisdom that is characteristic of conversations with TK. Check out Office Hours and Forward Tilt if you like the kind of stuff on this show. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.